All right, we are back in Romans chapter 10. So open up to Romans 10. Last week, last couple of weeks actually, we've been working through Romans and we've left off most recently with uh, this very popular set of evangelistic verses that's been adopted by many churches, many mission organizations that really kind of hits at the thrust of the, the importance of evangelism. So I'm going to go ahead and read over those, Romans 10, starting in verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Great verses, right? Verses that we can stand behind and we can uh, proclaim and we can say, amen. That's what we're supposed to be doing, right? We're supposed to be sending out people so they can be preaching, so that people can hear and they can believe and be saved. But uh, in verse 16, the very next verse, it starts off with however, which is a term of contrast, right? So it kind of catches us off guard that Paul gives us this great explanation of the gospel, how the gospel is to be proclaimed and preached and go out into all the world. And then he follows it up with this contrasting word. Uh, and I thought it was interesting through all of our, our verses. We're going to be going from verse 16 to 21 today. Each one of those verses starts off with uh, a conjunction of sorts. So in 16, 18, 19, and 21, they all start off with but. So again, the same kind of contrast. But each one of them start off with a, a conjunction. And I know that growing up, I was always told, you're not supposed to start off a, a sentence with a conjunction, right? But Paul obviously disagrees, and Paul was inspired, so I'm going to go with Paul. Um, I just thought it was interesting how often that happens. So verse 16, again, starts off contrasting what he just talked about with the gospel. He says, however, they did not all heed the good news. So he's not contrasting the gospel, but he's contrasting the response to the gospel, how the gospel was received. Uh, he goes on, he says, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So first off, we need to identify who he's talking about. So when he says, however, they did not all heed the good news, who is he talking about there? Okay. And how do you come to that conclusion? You just already know. <laughs> We do have to remember that these chapters, chapter 9, 10, and 11, they're all focused on the nation of Israel, right? Um, it seems like prior to this, he was speaking more generally. So back in verse 11, he says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Uh, 12 says there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, that is, in so far as who the gospel is available for. 13 again, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, and then... That is who he has in view in verses 15, 14 and 15, when he says, how will they call on him? So this they in those verses is referring to kind of a, a general set of whoever, whether Jew or, or Gentile. Um, but at some point, he kind of contrasts into discussing the Jews. And we can see that um, later on, where is it, 19, he says, but I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? And so at some point, in verses 16 to, to 19, he's 
uh, shifting his focus to, to Israel and talking about how Israel has not, they have been the, the group by and large that has not received the gospel. Um, they did not heed the good news of the gospel. What else do you guys have in other translations? I'm reading out of the, the NASB. What do other translations say there in verse 16? Yeah, please. 16? Yeah. Mine starts off with, but not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For, Israel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Okay, so there it says accepted. Does anybody else have King James or ESV? What does that say? Nobody's got the ESV or King James? All right. Okay, so Rex, you were NIV, right? NIV says accept. ESV and King James say obey. Not everybody has obeyed the gospel. So up until this point, Paul's been preaching hard, uh, a salvation by faith alone, right? Going back to 116, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation for all who believe, right? For the Jew first and for the Gentile. Um, it is from faith to faith, from beginning to end. It is by faith. For those who believe, um, what about four, four, five? Uh, it says that to the man who does not work but believes or trusts in God who justifies, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. Three twenty-eight, um, he says, for we we maintain that a man is not justified by works but by faith. Right. Um, so all through this letter, Paul's been preaching salvation by faith by belief. So. Why do we get here and he's saying that not everybody will obey the gospel? What is in view here? What does he mean when he's talking about obeying the gospel? How do we explain that? Okay. Good. So the gospel, even though it is by faith, it does demand a response, right? Do you guys remember the first words of Jesus' ministry as recorded by Mark when he went out into went out to preach? Repent for the kingdom of heaven, or for the kingdom the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yeah, so Jesus went out and he was preaching, you need to believe and repent. The same thing that John the Baptist was preaching, right? He preached a, a baptism of repentance to to repent. It's a, a change of mind followed by a change of action. So not that we are saved by that change of action, but again, the gospel demands a response. Uh, another popular verse, John 3, 36, we see the same thing, how belief or faith is equated with obedience. John says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, present tense, right? But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So there he says, you either believe, or if you don't obey, then the wrath of God already abides on you. So that belief uh, has wrapped up within it, within it uh, an idea of obedience that is a, a demanded response to the gospel that we are either for Christ or we are against Christ. We can't be sitting on the fence acting like 
uh, it doesn't really matter. We don't have to make a decision. Can I get somebody to look up Second uh, Thessalonians 1? Second Thessalonians 1, 7 through 8. Talks about the, the same thing, how the gospel demands a response. Who's got that for us? Uh, it's Second Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8. Am I in the wrong spot? I think that's right. I'll go ahead and read it. Um, I'm going to start halfway through the verse. So it's talking about how the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So again, uh, if you don't obey, then you're going to be dealt out the, the retribution by Christ in that, that final day. So um, this obedience is, is pretty important, right? It's not just something that, again, we can take or leave. The gospel demands a response, and obedience demonstrates faith. It's not how we come to our faith, but it's a demonstration of our faith. Again, remember in Matthew 5, Jesus talks about how every good tree will bear good fruit, and bad tree will bear bad fruit, that we will be known by our Oops. Um, and living here in Utah, um, I am convinced that this is the, the most popular verse. In, what do you guys think is the most popular verse in Utah? In response to this, if you tell somebody that you must be saved by belief in Christ, by faith alone, what are you likely to be James, met with? James 2. Yes. Yeah, James 2.17, right? Yeah. Well, faith without works is dead, right? Um, yeah, and, and there are a number of them that... Um, we must work in order to somehow incorporate this, this obedience. But that's, again, a misunderstanding. It is our obedience that demonstrates the faith that God has already given to us. Yeah, yeah, James and Paul have different audiences and different issues as a whole in mind, so we have to keep that in mind. We don't want to pit these two different authors of Scripture against each other like is often done. Andy? Yeah. In other words, he's preaching the exact same gospel to two different people. One of them hears it, and one of them does not. Yeah, exactly. And in the majority of those cases, I think in all those cases, he's talking about the Jewish people, right? Yeah. Um, what is what is God's favorite Bible verse? It's a, I'm I'm looking at Andy because I thought that he would. Yeah. But. How many <laughs> verses there are? Ten thousand. Is it ten thousand way high? <laughs> Thirty-one thousand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <it's... laughs> Jesus is God's favorite Bible verse. Right. Yeah, it's kind of a joke. Um, just referring to the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. You guys know what verse that is? Psalm 110 Yeah, Psalm 1 is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. And so people joke, well, that must be God's favorite Bible verse then, since he repeats it so many times in the New Testament. And the New Testament, like the Old Testament, is written by God. Um, following that same line of logic, God's favorite description of Israel is what you just said, Andy, that um, seeing they will not perceive and hearing they will not understand, right? It's not going to click with them. Uh, that's Isaiah 
6, 9. Isaiah 9, 6 is the, the Christmas verse, but Isaiah 6, 9 is that verse and 10, talking about how Israel, it's not going to compete with them, it's not going to click. And that's the most oft-repeated description of Israel throughout the New Testament. So, um, yeah, that, that obedience factor, that's not clicking with them. Go ahead. So, Romans 9.32 says that uh, Israel has uh, not arrived because they did not pursue the righteousness of God by faith, but they pursued it as though it was by works. And then, in our passage today, it says that they didn't, not all obeyed the good news. Mm-hmm. And so, someone might present that to you as like, well, here's, it's contradicting itself because it's saying on the one hand, uh, not works. That's why they haven't arrived. But on the yeah. other hand, they haven't arrived because they haven't obeyed. So how would you just sum up that, that issue then? You know, back in 932, it's being contrasted with faith, right? Very clearly saying they didn't pursue it by faith, but they pursued it by works apart from faith. And here, um, it's talking about how they are pursuing it not in works that are being demonstrated by faith, not in, uh, or not in faith that's being demonstrated by works, rather, not in faith that is in accordance with obedience. So your, your faith, if it is a saving faith, again, as James says, it will produce works. You show me your faith by, or you, yeah, you show me your faith by your works, and I'll show you my faith. You show me uh, your faith apart from works. Apart from works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. So it's a, a demonstration of the faith. Does that make sense? Again, another popular um, place that people will go to, and a good place for us to go to, is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and then follow it up by 10, right? Um, that we're saved apart from works so that no man can boast. We're saved by faith and not by works. And then it goes on in verse 10, it says that um, we are prepared, or that we are Saved by, man, I should have just quoted it straight out. Um, For it is by grace that you're saved, by faith, um, not of yourselves, but as a gift of God, not by works so no man can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand. So those good works, they are good, and we are prepared for them, um, but it is after salvation, after the faith, that um, we are saved by in the first place. Yeah, nobody can do any good apart from God, right? And so it's not until we've been saved and regenerated and made into a new person and dwelt with the Holy Spirit that he will uh, perform these good works through us, right? Uh, one more verse, going back to the beginning of Romans. So Romans 1.5 um, says that through whom we have received grace, so talking about Jesus through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. So, faith and obedience, um, they are they're friends, right? They go together. Uh, obedience is followed by, or faith is followed by obedience. Faith comes first and then obedience follows. Does that make sense? And I know that we've heard this before over and over and over again, but it's 
vital, especially around here, because it's been perverted. Um, that salvation comes by doing. Salvation doesn't come by doing anything. Salvation comes by God and what he has done, the faith that he has given us to believe in the work that he has already done and finish on the cross. And that faith will produce works. Does that all make sense? We're clear? All right. Um, so the gospel demands a response and obedience demonstrates faith. And then um, he goes on, he's quoting here from Isaiah. Um, Paul has tons and tons of quotes throughout this section of scripture. I have, I printed some of these off, so if you guys want one of these, there are some up here for you, you can grab them afterwards. Um, but this goes through and it talks about all the quotes and the references that are found in Romans. And so this section up here, uh, we see that there are a few quotes in Romans 1 and 2. That section in Romans 3 where it says that there is none good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave and their tongues are tongues of ass for whatever. Um, there's a lot of quotes in that section. And then just a few more throughout. But starting here, this is where we see Romans 9 and 10 and 11. And in Romans 9, 10, and 11, there are more quotes than in the rest of Romans all put together. So this list compiled 76 different quotes. And 39 of those are found in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And the other 37 are found in the remaining 13 chapters of Romans. Um, just looking back on the other side of my page, back in Romans 9, he quotes Isaiah in 25. He says, so also in Hosea, he says this. He says, concerning Israel, in verse 29, again, 27, concerning Israel, 29, just as Isaiah foretold, um, we see quotes all throughout. Verse 11, whoever believes in him and will not be disappointed, that's a quote from Isaiah uh, 13. He quotes from Joel, whoever will call on the name of the Lord. So all these different quotes that are especially found in this section of 9, 10, and 11. Why do you suppose that is? What do you mean? What people? Okay. All right. So, again, realizing that he's talking to the Jewish people, to, to Israel, to these Hebrews, he's going back and he's referencing what they know, right? And what they see as authoritative. Any other thoughts on why we find so many quotes in this section? Yeah, that's important. That God has a, a progressive revelation that he worked from the beginning and uh, progressively revealed more of himself throughout time. Good. All right, so yeah, I think he's just trying to give credence to what he's saying, just like somebody who might be writing a report um, for, for school. You're going to add all kinds of footnotes, right, to say, well, this is where I got that, and this is credible, this is believable. Um, and throughout this whole section, Paul is just giving footnote after footnote, reference after reference, saying that this is the word of God. This is trustworthy. It's not just something that, that I'm making up, but here, look and follow, connect the dots, and let's see what's happening. Um, he's quoting all over the place throughout this whole section, uh, pointing people to the fact that this is what God has said. And 
In fact, he doesn't even use that terminology. He doesn't say this is what God has said. But in verse 16, he says, Isaiah says in the present tense. So it's not past tense, but this is what Isaiah says, even though Isaiah came 700 years before Christ, right? 700 years before Paul. And yet Paul still says that what he is proclaiming is present tense. It is for you. This is gospel truth, right? He was inspired and he's speaking to us now. Yeah. Yeah, Jesus was quoting all over in the Old Testament, right? From Psalms and Deuteronomy, and um, that was how Jesus answered. He would go and he would say, well, it is written. This is what the Lord says, right? Instead of um, just, Jesus had the ability, and he did speak on his own authority, and so did Paul, but it just adds that, that credence, that, that veri- it's verified, I guess, from the Old Testament. All right, so what is it that Isaiah says? He says, Lord, who hath believed our report? And this is a, a quote again from Isaiah. Let's look at, um, go back to Isaiah 52. Let's look at these quotes. Isaiah 52 is where he quoted from last week. In Isaiah 52, 7 it says, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. That's what he just quoted, right? Before, right? Back in verse 15, that how blessed are those who, um, who send and, and preach and um, their feet, the feet of those who bring good news. And then he stops. Um, he doesn't keep quoting, but I want to keep reading for you guys. And let's see what Isaiah leaves out or what Paul leaves out from Isaiah as he's quoting Isaiah. So he says, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your, listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. So, somebody say something. Oh, I was looking at Joseph. I thought he was talking. (laughs) I'm hearing things, guys. So, uh, he stops right there before going on and uh, quoting any of that other stuff. And a lot of what we find in between Isaiah's quote, or Paul's quote of Isaiah in 52.7, and what he's going to be quoting here shortly in 53.1, that has split uh, fulfillments, that a lot of that was fulfilled when when Israel came back out of um, bondage under Assyria. A lot of that was fulfilled at the first incarnation that Jesus would come was talking about when um, peace would be announced, but um, a lot of these things haven't been fulfilled. Um, in some sense, maybe they have. So in verse 7, he says, your God reigns, and there's an, a sense in which God is reigning now, right? But also a sense in which uh, he will reign later. You can look at Isaiah 24, and that really goes into detail about how God is going to reign from here, from Jerusalem, 
verse 8 talks about how the Lord restores Zion. Um, a lot of these things have yet to be fulfilled. And so when Paul's going back in and quoting, he is selective in what he is quoting from Isaiah. And then we get up to 53.1, and we pick up where his, his next quote comes from here in verse 16. And Isaiah 53.1 says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so that's what Isaiah is, or is being quoted from Isaiah, by, from Isaiah by Paul back in Romans 10, saying, Who has believed our message? And um, we just see this idea that Isaiah is, is preaching and he's talking about this coming Savior and this coming gospel, this message, and how it hasn't been accepted and received by, by everybody, right? And there's a, a subset, a subgroup of people who have rejected that message. We'll see later on next week in chapter 11 that uh, Elijah has this same kind of mindset. He has this defeated mindset. And we'll talk about how Isaiah said, well, I'm, I'm the only one. But God said, no, I've reserved 7,000 from Israel, right? Um, I get into this mindset myself just recently having um, advertised for our Christmas Eve service and not really seen the result that we were hoping for, right? We sent out 5,000 mailers and we had another 3,000 clicks on Facebook with our advertisement. So 8,000 people that we advertised to and we had two people show up and you break down the numbers on that and our um, cost per acquisition or whatever is not very good, right? And that definitely deserves to be evaluated. But at the same time, we have to realize that there's a, a spiritual factor at play that um, we are, we're not promised that everybody's going to receive, right? The gospel was never meant to be received by 100% of people, never meant to be embraced by everybody who hears the gospel. And that's what, what Paul is, is realizing here, referencing uh, Isaiah, who had that same understanding that Lord, who has believed our report? Not everybody's going to embrace this truth. And here he, again, specifically has in view the Jewish people and how they haven't received the salvation that has been offered to them. In verse 17, he says, just reiterating, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So he's, again, just hammering on the importance of preaching the gospel. It needs to be proclaimed um, that is how people respond, by hearing the gospel. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. That is the importance of the gospel that um, Isaiah proclaimed, and that Paul proclaimed, and that we are to proclaim to you. Um, we are not the deciding factor as to whether or not somebody comes to Christ. There's not anybody who God had predestined from before time to be saved, to be his to be adopted by him that isn't going to come to faith because we uh, don't send out the right kind of Christmas Eve invite or because we engage in a gospel conversation in the wrong way and we reference the wrong verse. Or we stumble over our words. Um, God is sovereign, but that doesn't excuse our responsibility to go out and to preach. That's what he's talking about, um, that they will not believe without a preacher. They need to be sent that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Any thoughts or questions up to this point? Can you give us a long explanation of why some translations say word of God instead of word of Christ? Can you give us a long 
give us all the Greek names here today? Or? No. <laughs> this is really important. My whole faith hinges on this. Oh, yeah. Yep, sorry. <laughs> Yours says, you got word of God in? No, this is just one of those places where there's different textual families. Just I think it's Theo and... It's yeah. one of those things that King James only people really like to point out that verse and say, look, it was changed. Yeah. <laughs> Big deal, right? Yeah. Oh. All right. Um, so picking up in, in verse 18, remember that, again, just as Paul is quoting all over throughout here and giving these footnotes as to why the, the truth that he's preaching is found in the, the Old Testament, he's also approaching this very apologetically. He's trying to head off any of the objections that he might find people having. Paul's acting as a, a brilliant lawyer in this section, trying to anticipate the objections of those who he's writing to who are going to be reading this and head them off before they can even realize the objections themselves. He's going to anticipate them and um, address them in his writing. And so we see that in in verse 18, he says, But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? So he's not saying that they haven't heard, but he's anticipating this objection, saying that some might say that these Jewish people have, have never heard. And he corrects it immediately. He says, Indeed, they have. And then he quotes again, Their voice has gone out into all the earth, and their words into the ends of the world. Now, where is that quote from? You did that without cross-references. boy. Yes, Psalm 19. <laughs> I was expecting you guys would look in your Bibles and learn how to use your cross-references, which is a good thing to do, but Jerry's just got it all in his head, which is amazing, but yes. <laughs> yes, it is. That is a very interesting fact. Uh, he's talking about general revelation there. Uh, remind me, what is the difference between general revelation and special revelation? And what does general revelation reveal to us? God. All right, the fact that there's a God. So we can look out, we can see there's stuff out there. That means somebody put it there, right? Simple as that. That's general revelation. There must be a God. What does special revelation reveal to us? Like Andy said, scripture, God speaking to us directly. What does that reveal to us? Yes. But we can get that from general, right? Okay, so special revelation reveals to us the gospel. General revelation reveals there's a God, and that is enough to condemn us, according to Romans 1, right? Um, that we are condemned by the wrath of God. The wrath of God is being poured out against us. But special revelation reveals to us the gospel. And as Jerry pointed out, this verse is quoted from a passage that's referring to, referring to special general revelation. 
that um, God has declared in the heavens his glory. Um, I'll go ahead and read that real quick. That's from Psalm 19, verse 4, I think. I'll read the first four verses of Psalm 19, all of which, again, are speaking of general revelation. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out. This is a verse that's being quoted in Romans 14, Romans 10. Uh, their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterance to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun. So that's all speaking to general revelation. But here, it seems as if it's being applied to special revelation, which can be an issue for us if we're going to interpret the Bible as the Bible has been written. It's been written in one way, and we should understand it in the way in which it was written, right? So there are a couple of ways to understand this. Um, but first, I want to ask you guys, what did Christ mean when he was on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay. Okay. Those are some understandings. And what did you say, Andy? Okay. Do you remember where? 22. All right. And that's an important psalm, right? Yep. Psalm 22. Um, so, <laughs> Jesus was quoting Psalm 22. That was the first verse in the, the first part of Psalm 22 that Jesus was quoting. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what David was praying in that song to God. And so, we can, there are a few understandings of that verse, and we can get ourselves into some difficulties if we start to um, talk about how God was... Uh, turning his back on Christ, how God was divided, how God died. Um, we get into some really deep theology we don't want to get into today. But um, we don't want to separate the, the two natures of Christ. Um, Jesus was 100% God, 100% man, right? And so another understanding of that verse and what he was doing was he was pointing people back to Psalm 22 and the whole of that psalm. That's a very special messianic psalm which goes on to talk about how he can count all of his bones and um, people are, are casting lots for his clothing, for his garments, and they open up their mouths to curse him. And so the idea is that Jesus was trying to draw their attention to that psalm, which they would have known right off the bat by saying, um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, similar to Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, right? You know what song I'm referencing when I say that just as they would know what song he was referencing when he said, my God, my God. And so the idea would be that when Paul here is quoting from this other psalm, Psalm 19, about general revelation, that they would have this understanding that it would go on to talk about special revelation. Because in verses 7 to 11 of Psalm 19, uh, the psalmist does go on, David goes on to talk about how God has revealed himself not only in general revelation, not only from creation, but through his word, through his law. And so that's one understanding. Um, but it could also be understood just to be taking in an allegorical way and to be 
kind of um, ex exacerbated, that it would be um, exaggerated a little bit. He was speaking in hyperbole of special revelation using this verse from general revelation, that the, the words of creation have gone out to all the world just as the words of salvation, this saving knowledge of the gospel has gone out to all of Israel. They have definitely heard, they've had every opportunity to hear the words of Christ um, that were, were preached by, so verse 17, faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of Christ, right? That they have heard that throughout all of the world. And certainly we know that from history, right? That um, they have had every opportunity to hear of the gospel. Going back to chapter 9 and verse, verses 4 and 5, we talked about the, the great privilege that Israel has as a nation. 9, 4, and 5 says um, that they are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption of sons. You can't get any more privileged, any more blessed than that to be adopted as a son of God. Um, and also belonging to them is the glory and the covenants from Abraham and David and Moses, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promise, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God-blessed forever. So just referring to the fact that out of everybody who's ever lived, the Jews have had the most exposure to the truth. They've definitely had a chance to, to hear of the gospel and to be exposed to the special revelation that has saving power over them. And so... Paul, in anticipating this objection, says, well, surely they've never heard, right? Well, yeah, they have. In fact, um, the, their voice has gone out into all the world and their world words to the ends of the world. So they've had every opportunity to hear the word of God. Um, the second objection that he brings up in verse 19, so again, he's speaking uh, rhetorically. He's trying to anticipate what they're going to say. He says, but I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? <laughs> well, yeah, uh, he goes on to quote Moses. He says, first Moses says, again, quote after quote after quote, uh, here's his footnote. He says, Moses said, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. <clears throat> and so he's quoting here from Deuteronomy. Um, can I get somebody to turn back to Deuteronomy and read for us? Deuteronomy 32. And I want to grab a, a greater section of, of text than what Paul quoted specifically here. So can we get somebody to read Deuteronomy 32, verses 15 to 21? Wow, my time is flying. All right. And that first word there, Jeshurun, that's in reference to, uh, to Israel. Go ahead. Jealous with what 
All right, so that last verse is a verse that Paul quoted. So he talked about how unfaithful they were, how they were constantly turning away to gods. God says, you're going to make me jealous with those gods, and I'm going to make you jealous with this other nation who's not a nation, and they're the ones that are going to receive the, the blessings of God. And now Paul is saying, well, that, that is coming to fruition. That is coming to pass. All right, um, let's see if I can get some volunteers to read because we are running out of time. Uh, who can look up Judges 3 for me? Judges 3, 1 through 8. Can somebody get that on board? All right, Jeremy. Um, and then Acts 5, 12 through 18. Who can get that ready? Andy. Uh, Acts 13, 44 through 48. Jerry. And Acts 17, 2 through 7. Who's got that? Jerry. Other Jerry. All right. So, let's look at some of those real quick. Um, we're talking about this jealousy that God is um, provoking Israel with. And we see that um, just this, this turning away from God, this constant turning away from God in Judges. So, Jeremy, you said you had Judges 3, 1 through 8, right? Yeah. Will you go ahead and read that, please? Now, these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all who had not experienced experienced it formerly. These nations are the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who live in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. <laughs> they were protesting Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord which he had commanded their fathers through Moses. The sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters for themselves as wives and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of a very complex name, king of Mesopotamia, <laughs> And the sons of Israel served that, that king guy eight years. <laughs> All right. I'm glad you got that passage. <laughs> All right. Can I buy a vowel? <laughs> wow. All right. So that was a, a hard section that talked about how God used these other nations, these other kings that were wicked, right? They were, they were bad nations that had their own kings, these uh, Baals and Asherahs. And he said that, the whole purpose for keeping them around was to judge Israel, that when Israel went and they borrowed from their gods, the gods that were theirs to begin with, God was going to use those more wicked nations to judge Israel um, because God was jealous for Israel and he was going to make Israel jealous themselves. Uh, remember in Jonah, how Jonah didn't want to go to, to Nineveh. He ran off to Tarshish instead. And in Jonah 4.2, um, he recognized that um, God is gracious and that um, this wicked nation was, was coming back and they were repenting and he became jealous of that, that God was judging, um, was showing mercy to this other nation that was more wicked than his own. Um, God was inciting them to jealousy. Um, and 
God is the one who um, does this, this saving work within us, right? Um, he is the one who draws everybody to himself. We cannot come to, to God unless we are drawn by him. Um, John 6 talks about that, how we are drawn by God. Um, and here, he is not doing that with the, the Israelite people. Instead, he's provoking them to jealousy. And to get an idea of this kind of jealousy that he's provoking them with, let's look at the book of Acts and see these different narratives of how these people respond to the preaching of the gospel. So let's look at Acts 5, 12 through 18. I may have told you that. It might be my bad. Acts 5, 12 through 18. Yes, please. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all of one accord in following the portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the, all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. To such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets. So the Jewish leaders, the, um, the high priests, their associates, the Sadducees, they rose up with jealousy because people were being healed, right? Um, these good, great things that were glorifying God were going on, and they were provoked to jealousy because of it. Um, let's look at chapter 13, 44 through 48. And we'll see a similar thing, how they are provoked to jealousy. Okay, so there, once again, they got jealous just because of the size of the crowd that was growing. And Paul rebuked them and said that we're turning to the Gentiles. You guys have rejected this grace, and we're going to turn and give this, this gospel to the Gentiles. And they embraced it um, happily, right? One more section, uh, 17, we'll go 2 to 7, or 2 to 5. You got that, Jerry? Acts 17, 2 to 5. Acts chapter 17, verses 2 through 5. Yes.
All right. So, again, Paul reasoning from the scriptures, telling people about the truth of the God, the the God that they knew, um, that they spoke of, that they supposedly believed in, right? And how he has come and manifested himself among us. And the response that the Jews had was they formed a mob. And they rose up against him and they went to the the house of Jason and um, just completely blew this whole thing out of proportion because of jealousy. It says that Verse 5, becoming jealous, taking along some wicked men, they formed a mob. So God is inciting the Jewish people to jealousy, just as um, he said to Moses that he will make you jealous by a nation which is not a nation. That's what Paul's talking about here back in Romans 19. Um, Surely Israel did not know, did they? Well, of course they knew. Israel had more exposure to the truth than any other nation. And yet they rejected it. And God is now driving them to jealousy, um, giving this gospel to Gentiles, to those who are not a nation. Um, That would be seen as like a a derogatory term to say, well, you guys aren't even a nation, right? The Jewish people use that of the Gentile people in a a derogatory way. They would look down on these other nations who didn't have exposure to the one true God. They didn't have the the covenants. They didn't have the law of Moses. And it was um, common for them to to say, okay, well, you guys, you're, you're dogs, right? They would call these Gentiles dogs and, and look down on them. And God says, no, you guys are going to turn away and, and shame the gospel that I've presented you with, that you're supposed to take out into the, the other nations. I'm going to give it to them. And that causes them to, to become jealous. In verse 20, uh, Paul quotes Isaiah again. He says Isaiah is very bold. So he's adding to this quote from Moses talking about this jealousy, he says, Isaiah is very bold, and he says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. And we looked at this again back at the end of chapter 9, how God is giving this, this salvation to those who approach it by faith, rather than seeking to be saved by works, by obedience to the law. Because by obedience to the law, nobody's going to be saved. And He's making that manifestly clear by offering the salvation to the Gentiles, again, to incite jealousy. Now, it's not a, a jealousy for God, so to speak, but more so a jealousy for the, the benefits of God, for the salvation and the good things that, that God has. We'll look more at this concept of jealousy later on in chapter 11, verses 11 through 14, and how uh, perhaps someday God will incite Israel to jealousy in a way that will point them back to God, where they will say, okay, well, these Gentiles, they have uh, the true God. They have this true salvation with God. But to this point, it seems like they're just being jealous of the the benefits of God, um, not of God himself. In verse 21, we see a, a final objection that 
Paul raises, um, talking about how God didn't make himself available to the Jews, which is, of course, utter nonsense. Um, but 21, he says, but as for Israel, he says, now that he, that's referring to God, right? Um, before he's talking and referencing Moses and Isaiah and what they say, now he's saying, well, God himself says, as he's quoting Isaiah. So again, just a, another proof that Paul looked at scripture as being inspired by God. He realized that there was both a human author and a divine author, that God was speaking through Isaiah as he was prophesying. So uh, again, 21, but as for Israel, God says, all the day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and an obstinate people. Um, again, we can see this all throughout the Old Testament. We saw this in that passage that Jeremy struggled to read through about the judges, right? And these wicked nations that God used to condemn Israel. And that was the whole story of the judges, this cycle that uh, Israel would turn away to other gods. They would rebel against God, and God would send them a judge to, to raise them up and to bring them back to God. And they would do it again and again and again, over and over and over again, that Israel would reject God. And they would turn away from God. Um, not just in the time of the judges, but in the time of the kings, right? They kept turning away to other gods. They were uh, a faithless nation, but God was a faithful God and would over and over again repeatedly prove himself to be faithful despite their faithlessness. Um, but he says here, all the day long I have stretched out my hand disobedient and, and obstinate people, realizing that not only do you guys have have you heard? You guys have definitely heard. I've, I've given you this message. You guys have this understanding, this knowledge um, about who God is, this in, in, intellectual comprehension about who God is. And you have been offered this gift of salvation. God has made himself known and available to you, and yet you have turned your back on him and rejected this God. And now they have rejected God, not only in the same sense that they have done historically, but they have rejected the incarnate God, the God made flesh, who had manifested himself among them. The gospel, not just in a future sense, is hope for a Messiah, but the Messiah has come, and they have rejected this Messiah. And Paul is saying, um, not everybody obeyed the good news. These guys, um, in large part, they have turned away from this salvation. They've turned away from this gospel. And while we get to this point and it seems like, wow, Paul is being pretty harsh and this seems pretty bleak for the Jewish people, for this nation of Israel, um, he's going to turn the page. And next week in chapter 11, uh, he's going to start off by saying, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. Absolutely not. So, he knows that that's going to be the response, that after taking a, a beating like that, they're going to think, okay, well, I guess God's done with Israel, right? And he's going to correct that, that notion in chapter 11. Any thoughts on all of that? That's a lot of quotes, a lot of back and forth in Old and New Testament. Any thoughts or questions? Uh, 65.2. That's the one that he credits God with. That as for Israel, God says all these different things. And again, that says is present tense. Not God said once upon a time, but God says this is still for today. Yes? We're going to cover a lot of ground in this book, and we're going to have fun. So. 
The what? The blanks. Um, I don't know if I have a sheet with the blanks. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it wasn't until I started um, writing out sermon outlines and um, bulletin blanks that I realized the possibility for a mad gab, mad libs, what is that type possibility with that? So, yeah, growing up, I never took advantage of that possibility, but I, I realize it now. So, all right. If that's it, we will pray and break for a minute. God, thank you again for your grace, that you have made your grace known to us, that um, you have grafted us in, you have allowed us that possibility to be a a part of your kingdom, to be a part of what it is that that you are doing to display your glory to the world. We are so undeserving, but so incredibly grateful that that we can know you, that you have called us unto yourself and uh, allowed us this possibility to be saved from our wickedness. God, we pray the, the same for those in our lives, those who surround us, that you would use us even to, to draw them to yourself, to, um, to proclaim your gospel to them, that they might believe and repent. We pray this in your name. Amen.